Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Nuclear war. Apparently I've been saying that word nuclear wrong my entire life and I'm not entirely sure why. I've been working on this topic forever. Why has no one pointed this out? Well, this is one of the joys of being a podcaster is we get some amazing reviews, really nice ones. And every now and then someone might comment on the way I pronounce something. And this is one of the words that enrages people. We've got one review that says it makes their teeth itch and another has asked if I could put more syllables into the word itself. So I'm going to correct this error in my ways and apologize. It is nuclear, nuclear war. And I need to get it right for this episode because we're talking about nuclear near misses. All those times during the Cold War that we had broken arrow incidents, when planes might go down carrying nukes, where bombs almost detonated or some simply went missing. To take us through this topic, we have the amazing historian Alex Wellerstein back on the podcast. You will know Alex from his fantastic episode on the world's greatest nuclear bomb, the Tsar Bomber, one of our most popular episodes, so it's great to have Alex back on. So sit back, relax if you can. I mean, I wouldn't listen to this one before bed. It's not going to help you sleep particularly well, but here is Alex Wellerstein on Nuclear Near Misses. Enjoy. Hi, Alex. Welcome back to Warfare. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. I'm doing very well, James. How are you? I'm good. Yeah. Well, last time we had you on the podcast, we were talking about the world's largest nuclear bomb, the Tsar bomber, and how Khrushchev had ordered it to be dropped on the Arctic to intimidate Kennedy. And in fact, that episode was so popular that we ended up airing it twice. And so today, we're kind of going to continue on with that theme by looking at the history of nuclear near misses, otherwise known as broken arrow incidents. So we haven't prepped this beforehand. I don't know what incidents you're going to come up with. I'm excited to learn more about them and also slightly terrified. But perhaps start by telling us what a broken arrow incident is. So broken arrow is a military code word that means a nuclear weapons-related accident where there was some potential chance for a nuclear detonation or contamination. It's a very serious level of accident. And there are other code names like Bent Spear and other sorts of evocative and slightly phallic-sounding military jargon for accidents that are of like a lesser grade, right? If you have anything go wrong with a nuclear weapon, paperwork has to be filled out. Investigations have to be done. These broken arrows are things where you're really worried that something terrible could have happened. 
But anything, even like you drop a bomb two feet while loading it somewhere and you dent it, that's got to be taken a look at. You've got to make sure nothing is broken. These things are expensive. They are dangerous. They are very difficult mechanical devices. They've got to be investigated. If you put a nuke on an airplane and fly it around without realizing it, which has happened, that's its own kind of accident where you just weren't supposed to do that. But that doesn't likely have the chance of the nuke going off. So it's a different categorization. I can already tell I'm going to have endless questions. How on earth do you load up a nuke onto a plane without realizing it? That happened relatively recently. That happened in the 2000s where a plane got live nukes on it and it flew from one place to the other without the people flying the plane knowing it had live nukes on it. There is some danger. What if that plane crashes, right? Then there's an issue. And we'll get into that, I'm sure. But we generally do not fly live nukes around because it's not a smart thing to do. But it's also uh, what went wrong, right? How bad does your internal accounting and organization have to be that you do this in the first place? That's the sign potentially of a much deeper organizational symptom. So this is the like mouse in the wall that lets you know that the walls are hollow, right? Is you have a mistake of that level. Was this the US Air Force? I mean, do I dare ask when people found out, when they realized that there were a couple of nukes missing and they're on a plane somewhere? My recollection is they find out very quickly. Like once they land, they look in the back of the plane and, oh, there's nukes in the back of the plane. But this is not a good thing. Yeah, this is US Air Force. And it's just a sign that something broke down in the communications and the planning and the orders and the regulations. At every level, let's be honest. Something broke down at pretty much every level. Fortunately, the nukes didn't break down, right? But every level but the nukes. That's actually a really good point, yeah. At the final level, level that didn't break down and that's the important thing so how many of these incidents have there been let's say since the 1950s when the cold war world started to heat up do we know how many there's been so there's an official count that's been released by the military for how many broken arrows and it's not that many it's 12 or something like that which is already you know more than you'd like most of them are clustered in a very specific period of time, which we'll talk about that, but in the early 60s and late 50s. And there are a lot of other incidents that they don't list under here that one might question, doesn't that sound an awful lot like that could be one of those incidences? And some of this is definitional. Some of this is potentially related to information that is classified about whether the weapon had plutonium in it or not is not always clear. Sometimes these weapons were flown around without fuel in them, so it's not really a nuclear weapon. It's the non-nuclear parts of a nuclear weapon. And some of it may just be because the record keeping itself wasn't always great. The reason one can have a lot of some skepticism and pause is that the military has historically not been super forthright about this stuff. They really don't like to talk about this They've been actively averse to it for a lot of their history, the Air Force, and it's only sort of from the 70s onward that they really, truly start taking the safety of these weapons more seriously. So it's one of these topics where it's not clear how much of that is the secrecy itself, but it's a, like a dozen-ish is the answer that we have. Sounds like a dozen too many to me. All right then, Alex, I'm going to start firing off some questions. We're going to pick your brain, that database that is these near misses with nukes, and we'll see what answers we come up with. So you said that this largely happens during the 1950s and 60s. Let's start there. Let's probe that particular question. Why does it happen during that period? So the late 40s through the 50s is the time in which the American arsenal is getting just fantastically large. So a lot of times we think of like, ah, oh, the United States had nuclear weapons after 1945, and it's not quite 
true. I mean, they had a few weapons, but the Manhattan Project, not only did it sort of collapse after the end of the war and they stopped really producing at their peak, but it wasn't really meant to produce thousands of weapons per year. And that's sort of what they want by the late 50s. And so the 40s are sort of spent ramping up and building as many factories as you need so that by the 50s, you can start producing weapons hundreds per day, literally, if you want to do this. And they start producing all these different types of weapons. They make H-bombs. They make tactical nuclear weapons. It's just this tremendous zeal for, like, we want all the weapons, as many as we can. And safety is just not really their priority. They have really a lot of concern with the idea that they will be bombed by Russia, even though Russia barely has any weapons at this point. And they're really thinking in terms of a nuclear Pearl Harbor. That's the metaphor they're worried about. And so their priority is all about let's get as many nukes ready to go in the field to the military. Hurrah, hooray. And they end up cutting a lot of corners. Not only is this stuff fairly new and you have situations where they just don't have a lot of imagination for what can go wrong. So like they don't think of a situation of what happens if an airplane with a nuke in it accidentally catches fire on the runway and they can't put it out because it's jet fuel is burning and it's just burning to dust with a nuke inside. What's going to happen to the nuke? What happens when you set a nuke on fire for a prolonged amount of time? And the answer is not intuitive. You can say, well, it's got this in it and it's got that in it and that'll break. But under those conditions, circuit boards will melt and double onto each other. There are batteries in the nuke that are affected by heat. And if it's heated too much, sometimes they can have an electrical discharge. So there's like a lot of stuff that is not clear. So they have some accidents that are just inexperienced and they haven't been thinking about them and they hadn't happened before. And the response to a fear of a Soviet surprise attack is to try and make it so you can always tell the Soviets, even if you somehow manage to get the most perfect surprise attack, you'd still get nuked. So don't even try it. And one of the programs they launch is called Operation Chrome Dome. Great name. And the idea is to have nuclear armed bombers in the air 24 hours a day. So you always have these planes going around somewhere. And what they're usually doing is like flying to England over Greenland and flying back. And you just always have them. And they're being refueled in the air. And there's one or two of these always, all the time, so that even if somehow everything got destroyed in the United States, they could go on and kill their targets. And the Soviets would be sad, so they wouldn't start it. And let's be completely clear there, Alex, because these pilots, these crews, these aren't training exercises. This is General Curtis LeMay, who is infamous for making sure that he pushes his airmen as far as physically possible. We know that from the Second World War. That was his kind of brand name. That was exactly how he's made his reputation. And so they would be sent out 24 hours a day, round the clock, constantly in the air, just waiting to be told as they get near Greenland, all right, continue across and head towards the Soviet Union. So this is super tense times. This is super tense by the way, my favorite LeMay fact, I'll throw it out there. LeMay, during World War II, when he became the architect of the firebombing of Japan and all sorts of other stuff, he lost his ability to smile. Bell's palsy, it's a neural issue, and it can be caused by stress, among other things. He physically became unable to smile. I feel like, how poetic is that? If you made that up in a fake character, it would be seen as over the top, that this guy starts destroying cities and can't smile anymore in his life. And that's why every picture you see of LeMay, he's got this like grimace with a cigar in his mouth. He literally can't make any other face. Anyway, this is for real. They are expecting nuclear war, potentially. This is a real thing. 
problem is every plane has a certain amount of time before it will have an accident. It's just like a numbers game, right? And that can be a very large amount of time. But if you look at a model plane, you can see how many flight hours in between serious accidents. And if you run those numbers for this plane for 24 hours a day for several years, you will have a serious accident, you know, once a year or so. Like, you'll just hit that number. With a lot of planes, that's just not ideal. But when a plane has four H-bombs in it, or two, or depending on the situation, now you've raised the stakes of that accident dramatically. So a lot of these accidents are what sociologists call normal accidents, in the sense that, yes, the chance of this happening is low, but there is a chance. And if you just repeat the thing over and over and over again, you will hit one of these freak accidents where thing A will break at the same same time as thing B, and that's catastrophic. And so some of these accidents involve a plane is being refueled and something goes wrong and suddenly a bunch of fuel comes out and the explodes and now you've got bombs in the air. Some of them are just for some reason, it's not totally clear. There's some major engine failure and the plane crashes down. Sometimes some of these early accidents are like the plane is fine, but it has to jettison its bomb in order to recover from something. Wherever it happens to be flying over, it just drops a bomb. Now, the bombs are set up so that they, in principle, will not have a nuclear detonation without it being authorized. They aren't that cavalier about them. The word in principle, they <laughs> won't detonate, worries me a lot. I'm developing a flop sweat as we're talking and you're saying about just dropping these wherever in the ocean or wherever they are. I mean, to take us through some of these examples, you mentioned Greenland. The US had so many bombers flying over Greenland at this point and it had the bases there. Did we ever have any incidents where we accidentally, and we, I mean the West and the United States, accidentally bombed Greenland, for example? Well, we didn't bomb it, except that we did have a bomber full of bombs crash on it. And this happened at Thule, which is one of the big bases out there. This was towards the end of this period. This is actually the one that gets them to stop doing Chrome Dome. This is in like 68. And the bomber just comes straight down on the ice sheet. And you can actually see pictures of it. It's just like this smear of burnt destruction which results in these H-bombs that it has on board, they have some kind of internal detonation. And just to back up a little bit, the way these bombs work is you use high explosives to start your nuclear detonations. Your sort of bomb sets off a bomb, sets off a bomb in a big H-bomb. You could think of it as like four different bombs. Each one is magnifying things. So the safety devices are set so that ideally if this high explosive first bomb goes off, but doesn't go off exactly right, then it won't trigger the next in the sequence. When I say something exploded, I don't mean a nuclear explosion. I mean conventional explosion that spreads nuclear material. So it's like a dirty bomb, sort of. So we have a sort of dirty bomb situation in Greenland, which spreads plutonium over the ice. Plutonium is toxic, so we have to clean this up. They send people to take off several inches of ice. The reason this ends up ending the program, one, they've had a bunch of similar accidents. Two, it's really awkward because Greenland is owned by Denmark. And as you probably know, the history of Denmark-U.S. relations regarding Greenland is kind of complicated after World War II because they kind of expect us to leave and we decide we're not going to leave. And we offer to buy Greenland at one point and they say no thanks and we just sort of lease the space. But this creates a real snafu because we never technically admitted to the Danish that we were using nukes around there and flying nukes over it. And we didn't lie to them. This was one of those don't ask, don't tell sort of situations. But this is a really awkward awkward thing about when you accidentally have a nuclear-related accident on somebody else's soil and you haven't actually told them you're ferrying nukes around, and this isn't the only time this happens, 
this makes this awful diplomatic thing and also potentially a domestic problem if the Danish people don't like this. You can't really hide these things that easily. They just say, this is not worth it. We got ICBMs by this point anyway. We don't need to have this bomber in the air 24 hours. It's not doing that much except for creating liabilities. Okay, that makes perfect sense. But I've got to take you back ever so slightly because you've said that there's tantamount to a dirty bomb has gone off on an ice sheet in Greenland. What is the scale of that cleanup operation? These are pretty big cleanup operations. Greenland ice sheet is not exactly the world's best environment to be cleaning things up anyway. But you're talking about having to get a bunch of soldiers out there with Geiger counters, scooping up soil with bulldozers and shovels and putting it into somewhere so that you can then certify there's no more plutonium. And then you take all this soil and ice that's got plutonium and you find some place to put it. You bury it somewhere where nobody's going to touch it. And these things take a while. The only nice thing you can say about plutonium is that it's pretty easy to detect. So you can tell if you've cleaned it up or not. It's noisy. A little bit of plutonium will let you know with a Geiger counter that it's there. We dropped several H-bombs on Spain a little bit earlier, a place called Palomar, southern Spain. And the same sort of thing where the bombs fly out of this airplane and a couple of them land in the ocean and we have to recover those. And then a few of them land on land and the high explosive goes off. And when the high explosive goes off, thankfully no nuclear detonation occurs, but it does spread plutonium. And once again, you have to get out there and clear off all the soil. And this is farmland, right? And the Spanish, they're not super thrilled about this, but at the same time, they don't want to like totally alienate the Americans because this is Franco. We do work with them. We have bases there, which we do use as forward bases to imagine attacking the Soviet Union and they have nukes on them. And so there's a lot of like awkwardness about this kind of thing, but we go in there and clean it up. But yeah, it's a lot of work. It's not fun for anybody. It's not ideal. Well, this sounds like a fun road to go down. So you've got Greenland, you've got Spain. Where else has the United States of America accidentally left some plutonium? I mean, most of it was in the United States itself. So to anybody who would criticize us, we are equal opportunity self-bombers. We almost nuke ourselves way more than we almost nuke other people, which is, you know, something. But there's a few where we had to be jettisoned from a plane and like ended up at the bottom of the lake and you try to get it out of the lake and maybe you do, maybe you don't. Sometimes it's quite difficult to do these things. We have a lot where it's like a U.S. military base and the thing has a problem either on the runway or landing. I mean, that makes sense, right? But usually it's mostly the United States. These foreign ones are the real diplomatic problems because you have to sort of own up to this fact. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. 
For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. I'm Professor Susanna Lipscomb, and this month on Not Just the Tudors from History Hit, I'm dusting down my magnifying glass to investigate some of history's most notorious murders and brutal crimes. Was it a quarrel, or was the brilliant playwright Christopher Marlowe actually murdered in that Deptford Inn? Was Amy Dudley, wife of Elizabeth I's favourite Robert, pushed down a flight of stairs to her death? Were the Guise, that great French family, actually bloodthirsty murderers who secured their power through ruthlessness and violence? And what's the truth about the Hungarian noblewoman who allegedly killed hundreds of young women? Join me but not on an empty stomach, for not just the Tudors from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm trying to think in my head, you know, where did the US have nukes on bombers? I mean, we're talking about Canada... We're talking about the UK, right? Oh, it's a huge list. The whole US strategy before it has lots of ICBMs, so through the 50s and much of the 60s, is having bombers on bases near the USSR and China so that you could envelop them with a bomber obsession. This is people like LeMay in the driver's seat, right? They trust bombers way more than they trust missiles for most of this history. They like the idea of a guy driving the nuke. That has a sense of like, he'll get it done. Whereas like a missile is like an engineer's creation. You have to trust the engineer. And LeMay does not trust those people. The eggheads, right? He trusts the pilot, especially after Sputnik. But they put nukes in the UK, West Germany, Spain, Morocco, Italy, the Netherlands, France, they end up with nukes also in the Philippines, Taiwan, South Korea, Okinawa. If you search for containment in my blog, you'll find my little map I use for teaching. And it only shows nukes with bombers. It doesn't show other ways of putting nukes in places like little missiles and things like that. But we envelop just this ring around the Soviet Union. And I love to show this graphically because it really puts things like the Cuban Missile Crisis into a little context, right? Where you're like, oh my God, they put a nuke next to us. We put nukes right next to them. And sometimes the host governments know and sometimes they don't know. Okay, I feel like that in itself is a whole episode. So we're going to get you back on just to talk about that. But I'm going to pull you back to another point that you said. You said you might drop them in a lake and you go and get it, or maybe you don't. Now, that last part of that sentence also worries me. So are there any cases where these near misses have happened, these broken arrow incidents, where the nuke itself hasn't been recovered? Oh, yeah, a bunch. And these range in what kind of problem it is but you drop a nuke into water or like mud nukes are heavy and they're dense and they're coming out of the sky at terminal velocity and they're just gonna go 
right into the bottom of this thing. And you can try to recover them. And we do recover some of them. I mentioned that Spain one, some of them went in the ocean. One of them was really hard to recover. We needed like a little rovery drone thing to go down and to find it. And it was dented, but it was otherwise okay. But we've had a few cases where they tried to recover it and they just couldn't get it. Sometimes it's a whole nuke. Sometimes it's only part of a nuke, but they can't find it. And after some amount of time, they say... Well, if we can't get this thing out of here, nobody else is going to get it out of here. And so maybe they put a fence around it and they say, that's that. There's an incident which very little has been released on from a slightly later period where I think it's a fighter that has a nuke on it, like tactical nuclear weapons, goes to land on an aircraft carrier and for some reason just like falls off the edge and just sinks to the bottom and we just never get it back. And it's at the bottom of the ocean. So it's not ideal. It's a good Tom Clancy novel type of thing where like the bad guys somehow find a way to get this out from the bottom but you would have to like remake the nuke if you put a nuke at the bottom of water or mud for any amount of time all the electronics are going to break all the chemical explosives are going to degrade the fissile material will still be good nothing's going to happen to that but you will have to reform that into your own new nuke or something like that so again it's not ideal but it's not like you and i are just going to go pick it up at some point i have no intentions of doing that alex but we do have listeners all around the world and i'm sure they're going to want to know where these have been left do we know where these bombs have been left at the bottom of the ocean or in mud somewhere yeah we have a pretty good idea of where they are I mean, there's one place called Tybee Island in Georgia. Probably talk about Goldsboro in a minute, but in Goldsboro, North Carolina, there's a big part of one of their weapons. They never recovered what's called the secondary, which is the fusion component, which also has fissile material in it. The one in the middle of the ocean, we know where the aircraft carrier was. We don't know where the bomb and plane drifted down to the bottom. So we have a fairly good idea of where these are. But again, their common theme is that after expending considerable effort on this, the U.S. government concluded that nobody was going to recover these things. I don't know if they keep an eye on them in some active way. I suspect if you showed up to these sites with heavy machinery, somebody would notice. <laughs> One hopes. You would hope so. So what happened at Goldsboro? So Goldsboro is probably the closest to a nuclear detonation. Oh, so this is our nearest near miss. Yeah, this is usually what people classify as the nearest near miss. So Goldsboro, North Carolina is just a place in North Carolina. And over Goldsboro, North Carolina, in the 60s, there was a bomber that was carrying two H-bombs on it. Very high-yield H-bombs. And it was being refueled in the air. And there was some sort of accident either before or after the refueling that caused the like wing of the bomber to explode. And so the bomber crashes. I think all the people on board die. But as it's crashing, it twists in just the wrong way so that the bombs in it fly out of the bomb bay. One of them flies out in a way that doesn't make the bomb think that it's actually supposed to have flown out of the plane. They have a switch called a pullout switch where gravity has to pull it out at the right angle for the bomb to think that anything was correctly done. So this is a safety feature. And one of them doesn't think that it's supposed to blow up at all. And so it just goes straight down, no parachute, top speed, rams into the mud and sinks really deep. And this is the one where part of it never gets recovered. The other bomb happens to come out at just the right angle where it thinks that it was dropped on purpose. And so it starts to go through a detonation sequence. So it's not like TNT where it might blow up if it just hits the ground through mechanical shock or something like this, right? A nuclear bomb has to have certain things set off in the right sequence with very fine precision. So it's a very elaborate sort of 
mechanism. And it ideally wants to be set off at a specific height to maximize the kind of destruction it's going to do. So it starts going through this mechanical checklist, which involves opening a parachute because it wants to sort of have a little time to figure these things out, checking what its altitude is, waiting until it's at the right place. And it goes through all the checklists, charges up the batteries. It's ready to go. And there's one switch at the end that is the, were you deliberately armed switch? And the deliberately armed switch, fortunately, is in the I am not armed position. And so it stops and it lands very neatly. It doesn't blow up. It doesn't slam. It just daintily sets itself down. It's found completely upright, just enjoying itself. And that's a little bit terrifying because for one thing, when we think about what are they trying to prevent, when I tell you a bomb needs to have everything set off in sequence, usually that's used as an argument for, so they can't go off accidentally, right? If you set a bomb on fire, if you shoot it with a gun, you're not going to go through that sequence. And so it won't make a nuclear detonation. It might, again, make a dirty bomb, but it won't do a nuclear detonation hurrah. The most dangerous accidents are the ones where the electrical system thinks it's actually trying to detonate because then it will set everything off in sequence if it doesn't have a check in place. In this case, it has a check. One last switch was in the right position and you can say hurrah it was in the right position that's how it was supposed to be it's function you can also say well like everything else failed except for that switch and just as an aside in other models of this bomb this switch was notorious for accidentally switching itself on all the time so they got lucky that in this bomb it didn't and when i say switch i do not mean this is like a high-tech switch with computers. You're talking about electromechanical switch. It's a very fancy on-off switch, but it's basically just is it on, is it off mechanical sort of switch. So this is the kind of thing that made the nuclear engineers in charge of safety very disturbed. It's also the kind of thing that made the politicians very disturbed. This got back to Robert McNamara. He was horrified by this. The military would say, oh my God, it wasn't that dangerous. And trust me, McNamara would write down, we came two wires crossing from having a multi-megaton detonation go off in North Carolina. What would that have done politically, geopolitically? Who knows? But that's a really terrifying sort of situation. So funny that you mentioned McNamara, because what was going through my head was this incident where McNamara, who is Secretary of Defense at this point in time in the Kennedy administration, and he goes to Kennedy and they're talking about when they would retaliate if a bomb was to hit the United States. And Kennedy, I was going through the archival papers and it's always fascinated me. He turned to McNamara and he says, I would get on Air Force One and I would go down there or as near as possible. I'd talk to the military personnel and I'd find out what happened before I launched this massive retaliation strike back against the Soviet Union. Union. Of course, that would later become flexible response and more mutually assured destruction. But on the early days of the administration, we're talking about this massive LeMay retaliation, which I think Herman Kahn, who was a nuclear strategist at the time, said that he called this a wargasm because it would all release all at once at the Sino-Soviet bloc. But Kennedy always maintained that he would double check these things. Is this because McNamara had gone and told him just how close some of these incidents had been? The shift between like Eisenhower and Kennedy is in part a shift in fear for what they're most afraid of. So Eisenhower, his administration is most afraid of this surprise attack, this like Pearl Harbor situation. And so they are willing to cut a lot of corners, not just in technical things, but even in political authority, right? Like Truman sets up the system where only the president can authorize nuclear weapons use, which is still in effect today and was in effect for Eisenhower. Eisenhower adds a caveat that says, but I pre-approve certain situations because maybe you won't have time to get in touch with me, which is pretty dangerous, right? There's no like lock 
keeping people out. But this is because Eisenhower is more afraid of a Soviet attack than he is of an accidental war or a rogue general or any of these other things you could be afraid of. By the 60s, Kennedy and McNamara are more afraid of accidental nuclear war than they are of Soviet sneak attack. They are in a situation where they believe they've achieved a state of mutually assured destruction. They're not that obsessed with the idea that the Soviets are going to like knock everything out and they won't be able to reply. They have submarines, they have ICBMs, they have bomber bases everywhere. They've got more nukes than they need for anything. They've got tactical nukes. This is the peak of the stockpile is in the 60s under Kennedy. And so they start thinking, that's a lot of nukes out in the world. None of these nukes have locks on them. They don't have codes. That isn't a thing yet. They get really worried about specific things. So accidents are one of them. One of the reasons Kennedy doesn't want there to be nukes in Turkey, even before the Cuban Missile Crisis, he himself is like, this is a terrible idea. And there's complicated reasons why they end up putting them there anyway. But the nuclear base in Turkey, all you need for Turkey to be a nuclear power is a set of keys that's carried around the neck of one guy on the base. All you got to do is get a hammer and hit the guy in the head. Now Turkey's a nuclear power. This is a terrible idea, right? So one of the things that Kennedy does, and McNamara urges him to do this, they start requiring locks to be put on the nukes. So this is where the idea of what's called the permissive action link, which was explored in the 50s. Kennedy is the one who says, Put them on every nuke that's abroad. Every nuke abroad has to have a lock on it so that nobody can use it without authorization of the president. And you start having like the two-man rule in missile silos. You start really worrying about this kind of stuff. So this is definitely part of this trend. I think of it as going from like Truman, concentrate all of the decision-making and the president— Then it gets weaker with Eisenhower. Then it gets stronger again with Kennedy, this fear of that. And then you start to get something that's a little bit of a mix. And especially the technology makes it a little bit easier to imagine having this control in place. But the Air Force strongly resists this kind of stuff. They resist anything that infringes on their ability as they see it to make war if they have to. And every safety and every control mechanism is potentially something that won't let you use the nuke if you need to later. So what is it like today then? You know, we've got these threats coming from Russia, from Putin, these veiled threats that, you know, he has all options at his disposal. And a lot of analysts have said that this is him talking about nukes. So how would a decision be made by the president in the United States today? Say that Biden wanted to approve this. Am I right in thinking that there are nuclear codes and there's the nuclear football that's carried by an officer in the room next to him at all times? Is that the way it still works or is my head still in the Cold War? No, that's how it works. If Biden is not in the White House or the Pentagon, he needs this football guy. The football is, at this point, information about war plan options and nuclear options the ability for the president to securely connect to other advisors, even if he's not in the White House or the Pentagon, and basically everything that's needed to authorize nuclear war, including to authenticate that the president is the president. And so this is what like the nuclear codes are when you think about the president. It's not the president giving the codes that unlock all the nukes. It's the president being able to say, I am definitely the president. Let me prove this to you, to the commanders who can give the codes to authorize all the nukes. There are codes to open the nukes. They're separate codes. So you have a situation where the way it's supposed to work is if you're in a situation where nukes might be used, a nuclear weapon has gone 
went off, whatever, the president is supposed to be able to immediately get onto a communication channel where in the ideal world, he's going to consult with people who are going to give him information about what the situation actually is. Did a nuke really go off? What are our options? The Secretary of Defense should be on there. The head of Strategic Command should be on there. There's a few other people who probably... And then from this, the president is supposed to then make whatever decision he's going to make. It could be reply with a nuke. It could be don't reply with a nuke. It could be reply with a thousand nukes. It could be let's do nothing. And once that decision is made, that's it. There's not really supposed to be any easy way for anybody to veto it or contradict it or go around it or anything like that. So the president is still the one who makes the decision. All of this other stuff could be dispensed with. The president could just call up the head of Stratcom, say, I'm the president. Let me prove it to you. I got the codes launch all the nukes and everybody else is superfluous, but that isn't the procedure. So in principle, that isn't how it would work out. Okay, right. Well, I feel like we've focused on the US a lot and perhaps unfairly. You know, we've got lots of US listeners out there. I don't want you to feel like that we're picking on you too much. So have there been any incidences with other states where we've had these nuclear near misses? I mean, what states out there have nukes nowadays? We've got Russia, obviously, the US, China, France, Britain has them. Pakistan and India. North Korea, we class them as having nukes nowadays. Israel, is that about it? That's the people that have them as far as we know. Yeah, for sure. The fun fact is we don't really know about as many mishaps in other countries. They don't talk about them. You and I have a very different idea of fun, Alex, but carry on. Ah, it's fun. For all that we can beat up on the history of nukes in the United States is like, oh, there's all these mishaps and things go wrong. Other countries don't talk about their accidents. What we know is pretty schematic. We know... Sometimes things that may have happened or things that are slightly dodgy. For example, while France was testing nuclear weapons in Algeria, there was some concern that the Algerians at one point were going to be able to take it over. So they set off the nuke quicker than they would have. Like we have little snippets that let us see, oh, at one point there was some question in China about whether one group was going to seize the nukes and another during the Cultural Revolution. Great. Good to know. But we don't really have details. They certainly don't talk about accidents. Most of them, to my knowledge, I don't know if any of them have ever admitted dropping a nuke out of a plane or anything like that. We are in this situation where either we have to believe that the U.S. just has like the worst record and everybody else has managed to do it better, or that there are things that have happened that haven't been disclosed. Again, most of the accidents in the U.S. happened because we decided to fly nukes on bombers 24 hours. That's a very U.S. sort of thing. Other countries probably haven't tried to do that. The Soviet Union did not invest in bombers as their main strategy. That's why they made missiles, because they don't have bases next to us. They tried to do it once in Cuba. It didn't work out. But like the bomber strategy requires you to have long-range bombers that you won't get shot down and that's hard to do and so they did some bombers but they really went all out for missiles in a way the u.s didn't because it was so bomber focused so it may be that the u.s approach was unusually error prone it also may be that they learned from some of our mistakes which would be the most optimistic possible outcome but i suspect a lot of it is they don't like to talk about the secrecy even the u.s doesn't like to talk about them because one it undermines confidence for obvious reasons not just with americans but with our allies who let us store nukes on their territory which we still do with nato but it also tells you a little bit about how our nukes work and what our strategies are and how you might defeat them so there's like always a tension there with these things. And most countries are not as transparent about their nukes as the United States. Israel doesn't even admit to having nukes. They're certainly never going to tell us if they had an accident with a nuclear weapon since they will never admit to having a nuclear weapon, right? Okay, so put simply, probably, but we don't know. 
We know that the Soviets had all sorts of other accidents with their nuclear complex, some of which were horrifying, like way before Chernobyl, where things caught on fire. We know the British had accidents with their reactors, then they caught on fire. So what are the odds that they didn't have a problem with the actual bombs? Now, to be sure, they had fewer bombs to worry about. When you make 10,000 nuclear weapons, even if you only have a 1% chance of a bomb having a problem, which sounds safe, that is totally not safe, by the way, 1% for 10,000 nuclear weapons, that's what, hundreds of bombs? Like, that's a terrible rate of success. You want to have a 99.99999% safety, but you can never get it to 100, right? It's a technology. But, I mean, you could make the argument that countries that only made a couple hundred nuclear weapons, you can keep that failure rate low enough, they wouldn't have one. But the United States and the Soviet Union made just thousands and thousands, so the failure rate would have to be extraordinarily low for the Soviets not to have similar problems. And now the thing I'm worried about is where are all the decommissioned ones or the ones that haven't been decommissioned in the former Soviet Union that are perhaps being left out there somewhere or that have been lost. But I want to be able to sleep tonight and I want our listeners to be able to sleep tonight. So I'm going to bring it to an end there, Alex. Thank you so much for your time and for coming back on the podcast. We're going to put a link to your blog in the show notes. I want everyone to check it out. It is an amazing resource. You do a fantastic job. But you've got to tell us, where can we read more about this and where can we follow you online on Twitter? Well, you can follow me online on Twitter, my last name, Wellerstein. I am not using Twitter all that much these days, but you can still find me on there. But mostly my blog is where you can read a lot. But if you want to know about the history of nuclear accidents, I would recommend Eric Schlosser's Command and Control, which is a popular nuclear history book. He does a really nice job of showing how this issue of accidents is not a niche oh yeah, there's a few accidents, but it's actually core to the question of who can use the nukes and when, and is a core Cold War political question. It's a core modern day question, and it's immensely interesting. He does a great overview of Cold War nuclear history. Heavily recommended. Alex, thanks again so much for your time, and we'll get you back on Warfare soon. Sounds great. Thanks so much, James. Thanks for listening. But before you go, a reminder that you can now follow along online on Twitter at HistoryHitWW2, on Instagram at James Rogers History, and on TikTok also at James Rogers History. You can also subscribe to our free Warfare Wednesdays newsletter via the link notes. Here's a cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. 
And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland, further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.